Ephesians 5 and verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. So the last time that we studied together, I said to you that a loving husband often thinks upon his wife how precious she is to him. He thinks about how he can lovingly encourage her. He thinks of how he can teach her by his own example, what it means to follow Christ closely. And in these verses that we're taking here, we're taking a step farther with the Apostle Paul. And we see here first that a husband ought to love his own wife as his own body. And second, we see that he should nourish and cherish her flesh just as the Lord does the church. So let's delve into these things for a few minutes praying that we will gain much from these words. First of all, a husband ought to love his own wife as his own body, Paul says here. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So in our last study, we looked at the great responsibility which husbands have toward their wives to love them as Christ loved the church. And Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, it says there, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. In translating this into practical application to Christian husbands today, it involves praying for her often. It means thinking about her spiritual welfare often. And learning to give himself to her in the thousand situations where he leads her and guides her together with himself into the truth of the Bible. So in this verse now, we see that Paul is making this love of a husband for his wife very practical. A husband ought to love his own wife as his own body. What does this mean? Well, in Christ's case, it meant that he obeyed God perfectly on his church's behalf and that he died on a cross, on the cross, for her sins. Now we men cannot do either of those things, but we can lay down our life physically for her if the need requires it. And so I hope that you'll bear with me as I tell you this amazing story of uh, Philip Bliss, the great hymn writer. I'm going to give you an overview of Philip Bliss's life in this first point here tonight. And I think I must tell you this story because it's such a good example of the way that Christian husbands ought to think of this phrase, loving your wife as your own body. I want to relate to you what happened to the great hymn writer, Philip Bliss, in relation to his loving his wife, and giving himself for her. I found this information on the website History because it's here. The night of December 29, 1876, Philip Paul Bliss and his wife Lucy Young Bliss were aboard Pacific Express train number 5 
which chugged westward over Lakeshore and Michigan Southern Railway on the way to Chicago. They'd left their two young sons, George Four and Philip One, with Philip's mother and sister in Rome, Pennsylvania. And they were traveling back to their home in Chicago. Philip had written the words to a new song and placed the song sheet in one of his trunks that rode in the baggage car of the train. And Philip becomes a music teacher uh, earlier, and he married Lucy Young. And as he sat beside Lucy on the train seat, staring out into the swirling snowflakes, perhaps Philip thought about the journey that had brought him and Lucy to this train ride. He was born in a log cabin in Clearfield County, Pennsylvania in 1838. His father, Isaac, a practicing Methodist, taught him to love music and develop his passion for singing. His mother taught him from the Bible, and he had little formal schooling. Philip left home at age 11 to make his own living, and he worked in timber camps and sawmills. He managed to get an education and earned his teaching certificate in New York. In 1857, he met J.G. Towner, who taught singing, and Towner gave Philip his first formal voice training. He eventually became a music teacher and sold his first musical composition on the flute. In 1858, he accepted an appointment at Rome Academy in Rome, Pennsylvania, and while he worked in Rome, he met Lucy J. Young, who also came from a musical family, and they were married on June 1, 1859. He then wrote songs and hymns. The Blisses moved to Chicago in 1864, and Philip became known as a singer and a teacher. From 1865 to 73, he worked with the Root and Katie musical publishers, conducting musical conventions, singing schools, and concerts. He continued to compose hymns. Over the years, he wrote both words and music to hymns like Almost Persuaded, Dare to Be a Daniel, Hallelujah, tis done. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Hold the fort. Jesus loves even me. Let the lower lights be burning once for all. The light of the world is Jesus, whomsoever will, and wonderful words of life. He wrote the words for my Redeemer and wrote only the music for I gave my life for thee, and it is well with my soul and precious promise. So Philip joined Dwight Moody in 1869. He met D.L. Moody, and Moody and others urged him to give up his job and become a missionary singer. In 1874, he became a full-time evangelist, and Lucy often accompanied him on tours and rallies. In December of 1876, the Bliss family spent the Christmas holidays with Philip's mother and sister in Pennsylvania planning to return to Chicago in January. A telegram arrived in December asking him to return sooner to take part in meetings the Sunday after Christmas. He wired Moody a message, tickets for Chicago via Buffalo and Lakeshore Railroad. Baggage checked through shall be in Chicago Friday night. God bless you forever. And now I want to relate to you about the train wreck and Philip's valiant actions, which ties in with our study here tonight.
Philip stared out the window of the train. Chicago still lay 350 miles down the track. So far, the train trip had been a stormy one. A blizzard had raged all day and piled huge drifts of snow along and across the track. A cold, biting wind blew about 40 miles an hour, and the inky darkness of the night pressed against the train windows like a velvet cloak. The train, consisting of two heavy engines, pulling two express cars, two baggage cars, three passenger coaches, one drawing room coach, and three sleeping coaches, carried about 160 people. It was running at least two hours late. About 7.15 p.m., and by the way, it had been snowing that whole day. I think it was just an awful storm that they were in. About 7.15 p.m., the train slowly approached the trestle bridge that spanned the Ashtabula River about 1,000 feet east from the train station. The iron bridge consisted of two how trusses and carried a double track. The railroad trestle bridge over the Ashtabula River collapsed. The train approached the bridge on the south track, and suddenly the bridge gave way, and one engine taking a sudden leap forward rested safely on the western bridge abutment. The other engine, two express cars and part of the baggage car, stood with their weight on the bridge. The rest of the train fell into the ravine 70 feet below. Lanterns, stoves, wooden cars, and fierce winds combined to create a devastating firestorm. Philip initially escaped through the car window, but Lucy was caught in the ironwork of the seats. And uh, she struggled uh, to free herself but couldn't, so he climbed back the, in the window and he tried to free her himself. When Philip couldn't free Lucy, then he stayed with her. And they died together. And their bodies were never found. Of the 160 passengers that were on that train, 92 died in the accident, which came to be known as the Ashtabula River Rail Railroad Disaster. But Philip's trunk survived the fire. And it somehow survived the blaze, and it reached Chicago safely. It contained many hymn poems that he had not yet put to music. And inside of it were the lyrics for a gospel song. James McGranahan, a 19th century American musician and composer, wrote a tune for the song, and Thomas Alva Edison chose it as one of the first songs that he recorded. The song is, I Will Sing of My Redeemer. <laughs> thought that was good. Memorial services were held all over America for Lucy and Philip Bliss. There are funeral services held in Rome, Pennsylvania, and today a memorial museum is located there. Now the reason that I wanted to read this is to show you how very much that Philip Bliss loved his wife. He loved her as his own body. And when he saw that she was trapped in the wreckage, he went back and he tried to free her, but he couldn't. And so he decided to stay with her in those last moments, and they died together in the fire and the wreckage. So what an amazing thing that Philip did for her that day. I mean, he, he could have left. She perhaps was trying to tell him to leave, but he wouldn't do it. And what Christ-like love it was. Uh, Christ-like love in a husband will always cause him to think of what he can do 
to help his wife physically as well as spiritually. Well, from as simple a thing as holding the door for your wife to sympathizing with her in physical weakness and pain to do whatever you can to make her life more pleasant. In such times, a husband will provide for his wife. He'll do all that he can physically to protect her and help her in the thousand situations that will come up during their married life. Now, secondly, a husband ought to do all that he can to nourish and cherish his wife's person and her flesh. No one ever hated his own flesh, it says here, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. So when you think of nourishment, what do you usually think of? Eating. Eating. That's exactly right. You think about food. You think about food that you eat. You think about the uh, things that you drink. And if you're a thoughtful person in this regard, you will think of eating a wide variety of nourishing foods. And you will drink those liquids which will help your body to be strong and to continue to be strong on a regular basis. This uh, thoughtful consideration of our wife's physical well-being we will pursue all during our marital relationship. And the reason for that is that it will affect our children also, if we have children, and other people around us as well who are influenced by our perspective on these things. So again, when a husband is thoughtful about these things and wanting to be kind to his wife every day, he will talk these matters of eating and drinking over with his wife of what would be good for them both in terms of eating and drinking. Now there's a few verses which pertain to this subject I want to bring your attention to, and I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And verses 1 to 7. And Marty and Lane, if you would read that for us when you get over there, that would be great. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, <coughs> all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But we was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. All right, thanks for that, Marilena. Now I want you to see a couple things from these words, that all of the Israelites who came out of Egypt saw the same spiritual, physical blessings that were bestowed upon them. They all ate of the manna, which is called the bread of angels in one place, the bread of heaven in another. They all drank of the spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. So it says in verse 5, however, that with most of them, God was not well pleased. Why not? Well, most of them did not eat or drink thinking about God, did they? 
They didn't even think about their own example of eating and drinking, how that would affect each other. They only thought selfishly of their own lusts and desires, and that is to think only in a worldly way about your food and drink. In fact, it says here in verse 7 that some of them actually became idolaters. And it says that the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Do you remember what that situation was that Paul is referring to there? It was. It's when um, Moses had gone up on the mount to receive the Ten Commandments. And the people somehow persuaded Aaron to make them a golden calf and to all worship it together. But this, after they uh, sat down to eat and drink, they rose up to play, it says there in that text back in the book of Exodus. So I'm trying to show you how a husband does not hate his own flesh but he nourishes it and cherishes it as Christ does the church. So when you look at these verses of how these people fell into all these different sins and their selfishness in doing them, they're the exact opposite of what a husband should do for his wife. That he needs to think about the things that he eats and drinks, uh, for instance, that he ought not to be a, a glutton or an excessive wine drinker. And he certainly ought not to be given to hard liquor, which might lead him to excess or to drunkenness. Uh, it says here in our text, a man not, he ought not to hate his own flesh in that way, that he destroys it by excess that he is either himself or his wife. So husbands, we need to ask ourselves whether we're eating and drinking in that, whether we are a good example to our wife. Because a worldly man will only be interested in simply satisfying his own appetites for food and drink. And he will not think about his wife or the Lord at all. So this is what led the Israelites to not have regard for what was going on up on Mount Sinai. Do you see that? When Moses was receiving the law. I think it's very interesting that it was food, one of the reasons, that led them to this. They became idolaters, it says here in the text that, that Maria Elena just read for us. And they even led Aaron into sin over it of making the golden calf. And so as a result, it says in verses 5 and 6, that God scattered their bodies in the wilderness because they lusted after evil things. I think the thing I want you to remember is that God is always watching at us in our life, our everyday life. And as believers, he's, he's not there watching over us to judge us and send us to hell. But he's watching over us in order to see if we discern the issues of our life, whether we're selfish people, essentially, uh, or whether we are loving people, and especially the relationship of a husband with his wife, which represents, as we'll see in our next study, the mystery of Christ and his church. So what is the lesson for us in relation to how we ought to be 
as a husband trying to lead our wife into the truth and nourish her body, soul, and spirit. Well, look at verses 23 to 31 of the same chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 23 to 31. Vicki, if you could read that for us, I'd be grateful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner, and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no question for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, This was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you, and for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Thanks for that, Vicki. There are at least three principles that I see in this this uh, group of verses here that Vicki's just read for us. And uh, maybe you can help me with them. Where is the first one, beginning in verse 23? Now remember, he's, he's talking about, um, in the context here, things sacrificed to idols like uh, meat, uh, and other things like this. He's trying to warn them against uh, partaking of the Lord's table and of the table of demons, he says in verse 21. But in verse 23, he has very good principle laid out for us here. Can you tell me what it is? Things need to edify. Yeah, think that, that's right. Things need to edify and that all things are lawful. Uh, for me, uh, speaking about these these things of eating and drinking in a righteous way, um, but he goes on. I think I think, I think there's levels of lawfulness, kind of like there's priorities in, uh, in uh, yes some things you you can do, but you need to give them up for a higher something that's, something that's more valuable. I guess it's a that's kind that's, of that's excellent, Brian. That's yeah, just excellent. Yeah, lawfulness. It, things are lawful, but as Brian's saying, there's different levels of of lawfulness that uh, it might not be profitable, as it says here, or helpful, as it says in verse 23, or edifying, as it says there at the end of that verse. So that's the first um, principle there, and it it applies. I want you to see that all these things that are written about here for Christians in general especially apply to a husband with his wife. Okay? That's what I want you to see. The, the relationship of husband 
with his wife is set up in the scriptures as even the highest of relationships and the best example given to us of, of good behavior in living the Christian life if you're a married person. And that's why it's saying these things here, and not only just for Christians in general, but I'm trying to apply these things to husband and wife. Now, what, what is the principle in verse 24 then, the second principle? Who you're seeking good for. Not always be self-seeking. Seek the good of your neighbor. That's right. That's right, Matt. Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Does that apply to marriage? Well, most certainly it does. Most certainly it does. And so we always, ought, as husbands, we ought to always be thinking of our wives in terms of their, not only their spiritual well-being, which has been evident all the way through this passage we're studying, but tonight her physical well-being as well. So that's the kind of thing that we need to think about here in that second principle. Let no one seek his own, that is, just by itself. We do it to pay attention to ourselves. But each one, the other's well-being. Think about other people, in other words. And especially think about your wife, if you have one. So that's an amazing thing, isn't it, when you, when you see that. When you see that kind of a, a exhortation that, that we're given here. I uh just have a question about the, <clears throat> I think, I wonder if there is a connection between 23 and 24 when it says, but all things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Mm -hmm. And then it says to think others, not just yourself. And later it said, not your conscience, but the other person's conscience. Yeah, very definitely. That even though it's okay for me to do or eat or whatever, but because of the other person, it doesn't necessarily edify the other person, not that's, just that, me, no, but that, the other person. That's exactly right. And so, yeah, just what Maria Elena said is very good, that we need to think about the other person's conscience, and in the context of what we're saying tonight, your wife's conscience. Uh, sometimes people don't always agree on what they ought to eat. <laughs> that's just simply the truth. Uh, but it can be taken on the larger context of the local church, or it can be taken in the context of uh, husband and wife. So then we also have uh, another principle that's given to us down here. Well, there's a number of them, actually. but uh, And we could ask these, these questions as we go down uh, through here, seeing that I'm applying this in the context of not only all Christians, but especially a husband with his wife. Like when it says here, uh, well, I guess what we need to turn over to another set of verses too to complete what I'm trying to think here. I want you to turn with me over to 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 14 to 24. But that third principle is whatever you do, whether it is to eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the principle, the third one. Now, Brian, would you read for us 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 14 to 24? Uh, 
Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good, both for yourself and for all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies. Test all things, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who he who calls you is faithful. Also will do it. All right. Thanks for that, Brian. So we've been seeing here that all the things that are commanded of all Christians are especially to be paid attention to by a husband with his wife. So we could um, take a look at the list of all these things, pretty much all the list of all these things that Brian just read for us, and ask ourselves, husbands, if we do these things. Now, there may not be a need for this. Uh, like, for instance, uh, when it says here um, in verse um, 14, we exhort you, warn those who are unruly. Well, I don't think many husbands have to warn their wife of unruliness. I suppose occasionally it it might require a gentle reproof if you have an unruly wife, but uh, I don't think that that would apply to us here that are listening to me tonight, maybe not to anyone listening to me at all. But we need to understand that the rest of these things are, are very pertinent. Uphold the weak. Should you uphold your wife when she's weak? Should you uh, comfort her when she's faint-hearted? Should you be patient with her at all times? Uh, should you pursue what is good for both of you? Should uh, the two of you be able to rejoice always? Pray together when you need to and at all times, really. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Not easy things, are they? But I'm saying, what I'm trying to say is that the husband needs to take the lead in this. He's the head of the household. Uh, he needs to be the one who takes the initiative and the lead with these things. Uh, do you think together about the Holy Spirit's being with you both? Uh, leading and guiding you, the two of you together. I think sometimes husbands are insensitive to their wives in that regard. And they'll lead them, but they won't ever ask them what they think about something. Well, that's not what the Lord wants. He wants you to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, men. So let me ask this uh, do you try to abstain from every form of evil together? Do you extol the faithfulness of God to you as a couple? Do you know that God is able to sanctify you completely? 
body, soul, and spirit. Faithful is he who calls you, and he will do it. Isn't that an encouraging promise? Well, it really is, isn't it? Because that's what it means to nourish and to cherish your life in an overview. That's our study for tonight. Do you have any questions at all or any thoughts or comments or anything you'd like to bring up? Well, I'll tell you what, there's a lot for husbands to learn. <laughs> That's what I think. There's and a lot for everybody to learn. <laughs> there's a lot for everybody to learn. That's right. That's exactly right. Well, the Lord is good. He's our faithful... He's our faithful teacher.